Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Um, I'm not sure how many of you enjoy watching movie trailers. I, uh, I suspect a lot of you do. We certainly all understand what they are. They're those little short promotional things that usually take place at the beginning of a, a feature film when we go to the theater. I learned this week the reason they're called trailers, because apparently uh, in the uh, old days when film used to be distributed on reels, they would distribute it wound up because the way you loaded it onto a projector was to uh, mount it and then to unwind it onto the projector reel so that it would show in the right way, in the right order. And so whenever uh, producers wanted to send some sort of promotion for an upcoming film, the easiest way for them to do that was to just start at the end because that was the part that was on the outside of the reel. And so they would splice these movie trailers onto the uh, end of these reels and then uh, people would have an opportunity after all the credits and everything had shown for the, sh- for the show, they would have an opportunity to see what shows are coming up. Of course, it didn't take them long to realize that uh, people weren't staying around all the way through the credits and watching these things. So a lot of people didn't even realize that uh, these trailers existed uh, or that there was anything about them. And so in time, uh, uh, studios caught on and started to do their trailers uh, are actually at the, at the beginning of the movie. Now we, we still refer to them as trailers, even though they are, they're kind of previews. But ironically, no one's missing them today. I mean, they're some of the most popular forms of film, a uh, video that's out there. I read this week, it's the, actually the third most popular form of video in the world is movie trailers. More, more popular than movies themselves. People spend more hours watching movie trailers than they do movies. I think the first most, uh, most popular is news, the second user content on social media, and then the third most popular form of video in the world are these, these movie trailers. And we know how they all operate. They're supposed to kind of give you the, the story of the anticipated movie in a very condensed form, usually kind of in a three act uh, model similar to a movie. So they start out with maybe the, the big idea, the premise of the movie, and then they might move to some of the action that would take place in the movie. And then typically they end with a whole montage of either emotional moments or exciting moments. And this is where they might throw in there like a whole uh, role of actors, the famous names they're going to they're going to appear in the film, all to sort of get you to come back and want to see it. And then they package all that very neatly in two and a half minutes. Well, today we come to, I guess, what you might call a trailer or at least a preview of a very important upcoming event. It's a preview of the coming of Jesus Christ. And it has all the elements that you might expect in a, a trailer or a preview. It has it has uh, exciting scenes. It has demonstrations of emotion and power and even has sort of a cast run of all the key individuals that are going to have prominent roles in this kingdom. And all of this in a very abbreviated and very exciting sort of fashion. Listen to what Matthew tells us as he gives us this preview in Matthew 17 in the first 13 verses of this chapter. He says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, 
and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were, were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now this whole thing, as I said, is kind of a preview of the coming kingdom of Christ. And it all flows out of events that we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 16. You remember Jesus had gone up to the very, very northern part of Israel. He's up in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is largely inhabited by pagans and by, by Gentiles. But he, get, he did that to get away from the crowds, the Jewish people, all of their pressure and sometimes all of their antagonism against him. And he's up there, and this is, you may remember, where he begins to unfold to them in more detail the plan that awaits them over the coming months. Probably in the next four to six months, he, he will be in Jerusalem facing his crucifixion. And you may remember he told them about this back in chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He had hinted at this before, but now in this sort of retreat area, he is giving them the full picture. And you may remember it wasn't a welcomed uh, insight for them. They weren't they weren't thrilled to get this news and they struggled. You may remember Peter even sort of vocally pushed back against this. And I'm sure it wasn't just Peter. I'm sure all of the apostles, they were wrestling in their hearts because this was not the plan. This was not the plot that they were expecting. They weren't expecting the kingdom to unfold this way. And if you have, if you've known anything about disappointment, if you've sort of, sort of in your own life, uh, confronted circumstances that didn't turn out the way that you thought that they would turn out, if you didn't sort of roll on down the road in the kind of glorious fashion that you thought things were going to unfold for you, you, you understand disappointment. Well, these guys, these guys were facing this on a massive scale, a massive scale. This wasn't just some sort of, you know, interpersonal uh, conflict, disappointment. This just wasn't some sort of life circumstance change. This was their entire sort of uh, uh, framework and paradigm for what they thought their religion was headed for. That this is the, all of that stuff that is now in upheaval. And they're having to grapple with 
the things they've been taught and the things that they have come to expect and how they thought the world was going to unfold and how they thought their place in it was going to look. So in light of all that, Jesus understands that they have to be given some assurances. In fact, he has to give them some encouragement, some comfort. He even tells them at the end of chapter 16, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. That, that part is going to happen. That ultimate end that you've been expecting, it's not been set aside. And He says He will repay each person according to what He's done. God is not setting aside any of those plans. He even tells them in verse 28 of chapter 16, Truly, I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, that, that statement right there has generated no shortage of controversy. A number of people, having read it and realized Jesus clearly means that, that, that those disciples, those apostles who were with Him, that, that His kingdom was going to come in their lifetime. And of course, those who are skeptics and those who are liberals and those who question the authenticity of the, or the veracity of the Bible have run off the rails, you know, saying, oh, obviously this was, uh, this was a, a failed prophecy. This was a missed expectation. This was a, uh, a, you know, just a projection on the part of Christ or maybe even Matthew is writing his gospel that just didn't materialize the way that they wanted. These guys, they were filled with anticipation that their movement was going to overtake the world and it just didn't pan out the way that they thought it was. So this is just simply an error. More evangelical readers of the scripture, you might understand, don't read it that way, but they still struggle. I mean, how in the world could his kingdom have, have ever arrived in their lifetime? I mean, some people think, well, he must be kind of talking about in a spiritual sense, you know, maybe it's the resurrection or possibly the beginning of the church, you know, maybe that's kind of the spiritual kingdom that came in. Other sort of uh, minority uh, Reformed theologians even suggested that Jesus made some sort of secret return in 70 AD where he came down and he judged Jerusalem and judged Israel, but there was still a return in some sort of real physical sense, just like Jesus said, and it happened in their lifetime. But really, I don't think any of those things are, are on point at all. In fact, I think we'll see as we go through the text this morning that Jesus, what he's referring to is exactly what we just heard from Matthew 17 in the first 13 verses of this chapter. He is referring to this revealing, this preview of His glorious coming that took place on this mountain. This was a momentary, a brief trailer, if you will, a preview of some of the most exciting elements of His power and His glory and what is to come on the face of the earth. And Jesus reveals it to these three key apostles to help them personally overcome the sense of distress and, and, and discouragement that they might have been facing, to help them personally prepare for the road of suffering that was ahead of them, to help them personally be prepared for the kind of 
the kind of opposition that they would face, not only as they followed Christ into Jerusalem, but even throughout their entire ministry. He was trying to give them this preview of his coming glory and power so that they might have that point to look back on, to take heart that when things weren't seeming to go the way they thought they would go, when they weren't seeming to follow the plan of God's victorious sort of triumphant kingdom that they anticipated, that they could come back to this to bolster their hearts and their minds to the truth. Now, Jesus, excuse me, Matthew tells us this all took place, he says very clearly there, six days, giving us that sort of time stamp, which is rare for Matthew, but clearly pointing back to the very final verse of, of chapter 16. This all took place, he says, Six days, roughly a week after Jesus had said all these things. And I think it's, it's given, as I said, to sort of cement in their minds, to give them this confirmation that the things that they had hoped for, the things that they had believed have not been lost. They may have been delayed. They may not have unfolded in the um, sequence and the uh, script, as we said, the way that they think. But they're going to come nonetheless. And he gives them this experience, which I think really involves a number of confirmations of his coming kingdom and glory and power. Five, really, in total that we could look at this morning. The first one, very clearly in verses 1 and 2, is this sort of dramatic transformation of his own body. He is transformed in their eyes up on this this mountain. Matthew just says it took place on this high mountain. We don't really know where it is, but, but given the fact that they're in Caesarea Philippi and given the fact that that's just, just a few miles away from the tallest mountain in Israel, Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet tall, it's most likely that they were up on Mount Hermon at this point in the cool of the evening, uh, the temperatures in November which was probably about the time frame here, would have dipped down into the low 30s. So they've gone up on this mountain and they're up there alone, away from everyone else. Luke tells us that Jesus had actually invited them up there for a prayer time. Uh, He did this sometimes. He would get away from the crowds to have undistracted periods, sometimes entire evening, entire night sessions of prayer. And so here he is. And just like in other times when he took these little prayer retreats, he invited his inner circle, these three apostles, Peter, James, and John, who would become some of the primary spokesmen of the church and of the apostles, the sort of trusted inner circle who Jesus sometimes not only revealed his his deepest secrets to, but even kind of took with him in some of his most vulnerable times of weakness and prayer. And here he is again. And as he takes them up there, as they sort of set up to camp there overnight, the disciples, Luke tells us, eventually fall asleep, probably taking in the warmth of the fire. They lay their heads down while Jesus is off praying, and they can't fight either their personal fatigue or maybe even just their personal sorrow. And you know the feeling when you're overwhelmed by your concerns and your anxieties, when you're overwhelmed sometimes by your doubts and your fears, by your disappointments and all that stuff, sometimes that's all you want to do is sleep. 
And so these guys do. They just fall into a sleep. They're not up there praying. They're just sleeping. And Luke is the one that tells us that it's when they awake. When they awake, perhaps early in the morning, they see this glorious scene. Matthew just tells us in verse 2 that he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Mark, in his account, actually says it's brighter than any bleach in the world could have bleached them. It's just blazing white spectacle before them. This is really so magnificent, they don't even quite know how to describe it. They, they say that he was transfigured. The word is metamorphothe. He was transformed before them. It kind of, it's a word that almost talks about an inner transformation. The emphasis is uh, transformation uh, from the inside out. And, and so even their clothing being white probably is just an indication that the clothing couldn't even mask the transformation that had taken place with Jesus. I mean, it was just everything was emanating out from him. And it was shining like, like, like the glory of God described in the Old Testament. You may be familiar with that concept. It's the Hebrew word Shekinah. Uh, people refer to it as the Shekinah glory. Ezekiel uses that word to talk about the glory of the Lord. It's actually the same word that's used in some cases to talk about the flashing of lightning. So you get this idea of something that just absolutely takes up the entire nightscape. Just this brightness that you can hardly face. Everything flashing in front of them with this dazzling blaze penetrating his clothing and everything around him. And they don't know what to make of it. This was remarkable because up to this point, there was nothing that would have set them up to expect this. I mean, they had walked with Jesus for two years, and what they had seen in many ways was any ordinary man. Like any person that you would face or meet on the street. I mean, the, the scripture tells us there was nothing remarkable, mar, remarkable about him physically. He wasn't anything to be gazed upon. Just He was just an ordinary person. His body showed sort of all the ordinary traits of the human body. He didn't walk around with a halo. He didn't walk around with any kind of glow. He just walked around very much in ordinary human fashion. They'd never seen anything like this. And now here before their eyes, totally, completely transformed. They still recognized him. In many ways, this is, this is the way that you hear Paul describing the resurrected body whenever he talks about our bodies being raised from the dead. He says they're raised in glory, they're raised in power, they're raised imperishable, they're raised immortal. So, so you get the idea that that's, this might be a form of the resurrected glory of Christ that, that the apostles were given kind of a foretaste to, but even more than that, because even when he comes from the grave at the end of Matthew, he doesn't talk about this kind of Shekinah glory emanating from him. This is something different. This is something more. This is something that, that, that to them conveyed not only brightness, but con conveyed majesty, conveyed power, unmatched power, all on full display 
In similar way that he'll return when he comes in the clouds to judge the world in righteousness. Now, we're also told in Scripture that this glorious body of Christ, this glorious appearance of Christ, is not just for him. In fact, the Scripture tells us it's kind of for us as well. John says in 1 John, he says, We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we'll see Him just as He is. Romans actually says that all creation is groaning, waiting for the day for you and I who are believers to be revealed in our bodies. Not to say that we don't have bodies now, but to be fully revealed. The change that we're going to undergo and we're going to experience that creation itself is longing in a way for us to take on that kind of glorious form. And Paul, as I said, affirms this in 1 Corinthians 15, that our body is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. So this is sort of akin to the the, uh, body that all of us are going to experience in the kingdom. But here, it is displayed through Christ in this glorious fashion, a glorious preview of the majestic and powerful and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and magnified Christ and their hearts and their minds would continually be looking back to this. Even as they watched his temporary death, even as they watched the resistance to Christ, each time they faced something that might appear to be some sort of insurmountable opposition from the world, the weaknesses in their own body, the, the failures in their own mission, they would come back to this moment because this would be vividly etched on their minds for the rest of their life, this transformation. But it's not the only confirmation He gives them because you'll notice in verse 3 and 4, there's a second sort of confirmation that comes with it with the participation of these prophetic voices Matthew tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared and were talking with him. People have kind of wondered why these, these two guys among all the guys, some people have said, well, maybe it's the, you know, the law and the prophets. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, which contains the law of God. So maybe he represents that. And then Elijah would, would represent the prophets. Uh, kind of the entirety of the Old Testament, which I suppose kind of makes sense, except for Elijah didn't actually write any scripture, at least not that we know of. So, so that maybe doesn't seem quite to be right. More probably is that these are the two guys who are prominently expected to appear and return in the Messianic kingdom. Explicitly, we're told in Malachi 4 that God says, Behold, I will send Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So he's already projected that but when, when the kingdom arrives, it's going to arrive and it's going to be, it's going to be um, uh, you know, uh, announced ahead of time by this appearance of Elijah. And all kinds of Jewish writings were focused on this. They were taken up with the subject of describing the arrival of Elijah. And then... Even Moses is supposed to be some sort of 
indication of this coming day. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him to whom you will listen. And again, there's all this discussion, all these books that are written about the the, the departure, the assumption of Moses and all of Moses' prophecy and Moses' return and Moses' participation in the coming messianic kingdom. And now here both of these guys are appearing together and they're talking to Jesus, the kind of sort of uh, all-star cast, if you will, of this coming feature. All the big names right there, giving these uh, apostles even greater confirmation, a sense of reality that this is going to happen, that these, these men, not only do they exist, but they're coming back. Matthew, by the way, doesn't tell us what they were talking about, but Luke does. Luke says they were talking about Jesus' departure, meaning that they were talking about His eventual death and burial and resurrection and ascension. They were already kind of discussing the way that this plan for God's kingdom was going to unfold. The disciples couldn't get it. Peter had tried to rebuke Jesus whenever he talked about it, but Moses and Elijah were there, and they were discussing the plan of God. They were discussing the way that the kingdom was going to to unfold, including the uh, temporary death of Christ. Well, in verse 4, Peter He's coming out of his sort of sleep and, and stupor, and he just responds in, in sort of in the moment. He says, Lord, it's, it's good for us to be here. I, I, if you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Luke, by the way, says he didn't know what he was saying. Literally, I mean, he says like he didn't know what he was saying. Mark says he was just so afraid he didn't know what to say. I mean, I can understand it. You just kind of, you're just stunned by, by what you're seeing here. You don't really know how to take it all in. And so, uh, so he shares these words that come to his mind, which are really ill-advised. He's not really comprehending what's taking place right now in this moment. But whatever he suggests here clearly isn't appropriate because we see a third confirmation that is given partly to correct uh, uh, Peter and partly to further affirm Christ. You see it in verse 5 with this divine declaration, God's voice that comes out of the cloud, a cloud that comes around them, just like you see in the Old Testament when God shows up to speak. He often speaks from a cloud as a kind of a symbol of the fact that you and I, we can't look on God. In our, in our fallen, sinful, weak bodies, we can't gaze directly on God. So He normally shows up in these kind of cloud forms, and He does the same here. And He speaks, and He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. I mean, if the, if the Old Testament had promised a, a prophet like Moses... To whom the people were going to listen, the voice clarifies, this is the guy. He's the one that you're supposed to listen to. And they were now supposed to turn their attention to him. And in other words, this isn't three equal messengers. 
These aren't three equal leaders. The suggestion that you're supposed to build three equal tents or tabernacles to commemorate all of them is misguided at best, which is ironic because the church nevertheless came along in history and built three tabernacles or three cathedrals on Mount Tabor where they thought this took place to commemorate this, exactly what God was not wanting. The voice is coming saying, no, there's something unique about this man, Jesus. He's not just any other man. He's not just any other teacher. He's not just any other preacher. He's not just any other prophet. This is my beloved son. This is the one who shares my nature. This is the one who shares my character. He is my son in that sense. And with him, I am well pleased. Meaning that really he's the only person who's ever lived who perfectly pleased God. He doesn't say that about Moses or Elijah or anyone else. He is the one. Jesus is the one who perfectly pleased God, meaning he never sinned, he never violated the law, he never disobeyed God, he was completely holy, he was completely good, he was completely innocent, completely honorable, completely blameless. And that's what this voice is clarifying. And so to suggest that you're going to somehow put him on par with Moses and Elijah is confused, it is foolish, it is misguided, it may even be blasphemous. And so God, it says, as Peter was speaking, while the words were still coming out of his mouth, God speaks forth to shut that down. And as he does it, it provides another stunning confirmation of exactly who Jesus is. Of the truthfulness of everything that he said. He is the one, the anointed one. The one who is the promised Messiah, the one who's going to usher in God's kingdom. All that sort of builds to the fourth confirmation of this coming, which I, I simply call the apostolic authentication in verses 6 through 9. The apostolic authentication. I mean, these guys didn't know what to say at this point. Matthew says when they heard the voice in verse 6, they just fell on their faces and they were terrified. They were terrified at this, the presence of God. I, I know I've, I've shared uh, this story, but that's not my fault. It's yours for show, showing up again. Um, but, but I chopped down a tree. I remember chopping down this massive pine tree one time. I don't know what I was thinking, um, but I thought I could get it right. And I cut that thing, and I cut that thing, and eventually it started to, to fall. And the moment it started to fall, I immediately was struck with absolute terror, knowing that I, 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 this is a massive amount of power. I heard the creaking and the cracking of the wood and then the swoosh of the air. And then I heard that thing penetrate and cut through all of the trees 40, 50 feet uh, away because I cut it at the very bottom. It went tumbling down and I I thought at this point I I mean this thing might kill somebody it might kill me and I just remember like the terror 
And even after everything had fallen, even after the tree was laying there and the dust was flying up and the birds were escaping and everything, I just remember trembling for minutes afterward at the sheer power of what had just taken place in front of me. That's nothing compared to what these guys were going through. I mean, they just saw this unspeakable display of power and they fall on their faces. I mean, they they don't even know what's happening now. Completely dumbfounded and undone. Until in verse 7, Jesus comes and gently touches them and He says to them, Rise and have no fear. You know, this is also kind of a preview of the kingdom. Because all that same power and all that same glory and all that same destructive force of God's might and God's voice and all that stuff, it's coming. It's going to be manifest across the world and people are going to tremble and they're going to fall on their faces and they're going to be undone and they're not going to know what to do whenever they come face to face with a holy God. They're going to feel all this same terror. But the difference is that those who are in Christ, they're going to feel this same kind of gentle touch. Don't fear. Don't fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. They lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus alone, which is kind of the point. I mean, this is kind of where they're supposed to be fixed anyway. They absolutely riveted to Him now. It's really only later that they would really start to put all the pieces of this whole event together, which is why, by the way, in verse 9, as they're going down the mountain, Jesus tells them, don't, don't tell anyone about this until after the resurrection because they, they couldn't even process it. I mean, they're so traumatized, they can't even process what they have just experienced. But in time, they would. In time, as, as they got down the mountain and they saw all these events unfold, in time, they would look back on this as one of the most important experiences of their life. And they would become eyewitnesses of this to everyone that they could tell. And, and it becomes clear why they're there. There are three of them because... Because the credibility of three witnesses, this was the Old Testament standard in Deuteronomy 19, every fact is established on the basis of two or three witnesses, and this becomes a standard sort of, of, of credibility and truthfulness throughout the Mosaic Law. In fact, even in Western society, we have adopted this, uh, this, this uh, metric, if you will, of multiple witnesses like this, because we understand the difficulty of of three people getting together and all agreeing to a lie and maintaining that lie consistently over time and throughout. Getting them all stick together and all of them to not turn their backs. I mean, they're untrustworthy people if they're telling a lie. They're self-consumed and self-interested. And so those kinds of people typically at some point will betray even their co-conspirators. And so when you can get three people to all sort of say the same thing and all agree on the same thing, then you have a level of credibility that is robust, which is exactly what's taking place here. These guys were brought up, they saw all these things together, and it provided this, this 
high level of credibility, which is exactly what Jesus wanted to establish. And this becomes a big deal for them personally. A tremendous source of confidence about the coming kingdom that was ahead of them. They would go on to share it not only with the other apostles, but they would speak of it to anyone who doubted God's coming and His promises of His kingdom. Now, you probably hear this. If you have your Bibles, you can look with me at Second Peter 1. This is probably where you hear it most clearly in Second Peter 1. Peter wrote this little letter to address a group of people who were denying the return of Christ and rejecting the idea of His kingdom. According to 2 Peter 3, they were, they were suggesting, hey, you know, the world is kind of just going on the way it's going on. Look around, nothing's changing. Everything is just going on the way it's always gone on. And so uh, this whole idea about a return of Christ is bogus. It's wishful thinking. Everything's going to continue on as it always has, they said. So Peter writes this letter partly to confront them and to confront these, these uh, false ideas. And he does it by looking back to this event on the mountain. And it gives you a clear sense of how significant this was in his mind. He says in verse 16 of Second Peter 1, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. This is... This is Peter clearly looking back to this event. He's got all the sort of language. He talks about the mountain. He talks about the power. He talks about the glory. He talks about the voice, the majesty. Clearly, this transfiguration was a, was a confirmation in his heart and mind of the coming, the, 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 the power and the glory and the arrival, he calls it here in Second Peter, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word is parousia. It's used throughout the New Testament to talk about the second coming of Christ. It's even used in the final verse of Matthew 16 when Jesus says, Some of you who are standing here today will not taste death until you see my parousia. And so, so James is saying, excuse me, uh, Peter is saying, Look, this, this is it. We were there with him on the mountain. We saw the parousia. And he uses all that to assure them that when he speaks about the coming return of Christ, he knows what he's talking about. He's an eyewitness. This isn't some cleverly devised story that he and his buddies got together and kind of drew up with no basis in reality. That's how the false teachers wanted to present it. But, but Peter's saying, I'm telling you guys, this is true. I want to tell you, I saw it with my own eyes. I'm sure it was a point of frustration for him from time to time, if you've ever had that. Or you try to convey something to somebody and they just don't believe you and you're just doing everything you can to help them understand what you, what you know or what you saw. And, and Peter's saying that. I was an eyewitness, guys. I saw all this. It was a real event. It's all rooted in history because I was there. 
I saw his glory, I saw his face and his clothing transformed before my eyes. I heard the voice coming out of heaven that honored him. I mean, this, this is all he knows to do is just give them what he saw and hope, hope that they would understand the significance of this. He wants to tell everybody because he knew the implications that the kingdom of God is coming. With all of its power and all of its glory, with Moses and Elijah, it's coming. And what does it mean? What does it mean for the rest of us? What does it mean for, for even the rest of the Bible? Well, Peter, said, Peter says it there in verse 19. He says, we have the prophetic word now more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. This prophetic word about the kingdom, it's been confirmed. And guess what? You need to pay attention to it. You might be walking in this dark world right now, but the day is going to dawn. The night's going to be over. You may think that it's going to last forever, but it's not. We have confirmation that the the day of Christ, the day of the Lord's return is coming. And not only that, he says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, somebody's own myths and somebody's own fables. Nothing in Scripture is that way. No prophecy, he says in verse 21, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we got confirmation of that, he says, on the holy mountain. Everything the Bible says about Christ's coming is true. I saw it with my own eyes. This was no ordinary man. I heard the voice. I saw his transfiguration. I saw these other men with him. And so you got this apostolic witness that becomes a major component in the overall confirmation of this coming kingdom. Along with the transfiguration and the participation of these Old Testament saints and this divine declaration, now a fourth testimony establishing all of these things exactly as the Scripture says. And Peter says, therefore, you should trust all the Scripture. I urge you, pay close attention to it like a lamp shining in the darkness through which you're walking. Back over to Matthew 17, before this whole event comes to a conclusion, there's, there's one more important confirmation. I, I, I just call it the instructive clarification in verses 10 through 13. The disciples, they're coming down the mountain, they've seen and heard everything, and then they, they're a little confused, and so they ask Jesus in verse 10, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're still struggling to piece all this together. And so I have this question now, given everything that they've seen, given the sort of preview of this kingdom and, and all of that, what does it mean then to say that Elijah must come first? I mean, is that what we just saw up on the mountain? Is that what that's all about? Or is there something else? Or we don't really understand all these things. This was a reference again back to Malachi 4 where it says that God was going to send Elijah before the great and coming day of the Lord. How does all that relate, they're asking? 
Why do all of our scribes say that this was supposed to happen in this sequence? And not only that, Elijah was supposed to come and he was supposed to restore all things. And they're no doubt thinking, well, that didn't happen. Well, Jesus answers them and he confirms in a way. He says in verse 11, well, Elijah does come. That is accurate. And he will restore all things. That is a proper interpretation of Malachi. But then in verse 12, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. Now he shifts to the past tense. Yeah, he will come, but he has already come. And, and he's basically saying, yeah, you got, the, you got the sort of interpretation, the basic framework right, but the understanding of how that unfolds, you got woefully wrong. Israel got it woefully wrong. Because the reality is Elijah has already come. And as Jesus says there in verse 12, they did not recognize him. In fact, they did to him whatever they pleased, meaning that they rejected him, they abused him, they imprisoned him, and they eventually killed him. So, so that was not an expected part of the plan, to say the least. He will come, and even we know from the Scripture, He's going to arrive a second time with the second coming of Christ. But it's not going to unfold exactly as you might have imagined. You have the evidence already. You have the evidence not only for what you saw on the mountain, but you have the evidence of John and his ministry. But you see the way the world reacted to him. He was a part of God's plan. He did come exactly as Scripture prophesied. But the thing that you may not have anticipated is the world didn't want Him. His own people didn't want Him. They don't want Him. They don't want their Messiah. They don't want a kingdom. They don't want righteousness. They don't want any of these things that God has either ordained or promised. And so they rejected him, and as Jesus then points out in verse 13, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So prepare yourself, he says. This kingdom is coming, but it's not going to come the way you might have thought. There are going to be twists, and there are going to be turns. There's going to be disappointments. There's going to be delays. Just because you think you understand part of it, It doesn't mean that God isn't going to do what He's going to do. In this case, Elijah will be rejected. In this case, the Messiah will be killed. And here you are expecting God to do all these things and to set up the kingdom the way that you thought. And it's just not going to happen the way that you thought it was going to happen. It's kind of like in your own life. You know, you're, you're asking God to, to uh, execute His justice and His righteousness and His mercy or whatever it might be. And you have these expecta- expectations and they don't always unfold the way that you think they'll unfold. But He's just helping them to see that none of that means that the kingdom has been thwarted or that God's plan is not unfolding exactly the way He wants it to. That's what this mountain is about. That's what this confirmation is about. That's why we have these eyewitnesses who have brought this down to you and me to tell us, they, these, these three guys saw this. And they're telling you 
This stuff is true. The prophetic word has been confirmed, and you would do well to pay attention to all of it. Because it's true. We saw it, and it's true. So you take heed while you wait. You take heed while you go through whatever suffering the Lord has you, and you take heed. The kingdom's coming. The power and the glory is coming in God's timing and in God's way. Father, this is uh, much needed for us, for we too. We face a world that has rejected its Savior, turned its back on its Maker. We are in a world that doesn't want your kingdom and it doesn't want your righteousness. And Lord, it certainly appears to us at times like the kingdom may never arrive, like darkness and unrighteousness will reign forever. May we take heart and take courage then as we hear from the words of Peter and and these eyewitnesses. May we take courage. You've already shown your glory. They've already seen a glimpse of what is to come and they were confident. May you fill us with the same confidence today that we can stand firm in the face of suffering, that we can continue to look to you, your prophetic word and cling to it. We'll do that, Lord. We'll set our hope on the day of your dawning. And in the meantime, will magnify you for your promised return. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.